0: Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. Morning, everyone. It's been so fun seeing a lot of old friends and meeting new friends, too. And, you know, the last time we were at Harvest was six years ago. And, you know, a lot of your kids, we knew when they were, like, half their size. And as I've been saying hi to them, walking around, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe you're so big now. But they have no idea who I am. And uh, just in case later on they come up to you and say, there's this creepy guy who keeps telling me how much I've grown, please provide that context for them. I knew them when they were half their size. Um, I actually know them even though they don't know me. Uh, But it's been great seeing all of your kids and uh, meeting some new faces as well. Uh, I wanted to uh, read our theme verses again from Ephesians chapter four, and let me let me throw this up there. Uh, let me read this for us again. I provided the first few verses there just to give a little bit more context. But as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Uh, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Unity is not something, oneness is not something that happens naturally. You know, we're not hardwired to pursue those things innately. It's something that we have to strive to achieve. It's sometimes a grueling work of striving for that kind of community. And last night we talked about unforgiveness as one of the barriers to achieving that kind of unity. And even the process of growing in forgiveness is often an excruciating lifelong Journey as well, but tis, this morning I wanted to talk about another barrier to oneness, and that is the the preoccupation with the self, the preoccupation with the self. And conversely, one of the key ingredients to cultivating thick community is self forgetfulness or self sacrifice. And you know, one of the great things about uh, being a part of a community like Harvest, intergenerational. You know, we're a part of a community in Manhattan that's. Uh, a lot younger, uh, mostly 20s and 30s, some people in their 40s. And you know, our family is actually one of the older families there. A lot of uh, singles. One thing I've noticed about interacting with parents here, uh, a handful of empty nesters or almost empty nesters. And when I see uh, some of the empty nesters walking around, they're, just, they're like floating, they're like gliding around campus. The freedom that they have just enjoying life, always smiling, um, and I realize we're in a very different life stage with our kids, uh, 9, 7, and 4, and uh, I realize every season of parenting has uh, its own unique challenges. I, I realize our season is very physically intense. As the kids get older, it becomes more psychologically, emotionally draining and intense. Um, but the reason why I bring that up, having young kids in this season, there's not a lot of time for things like watching movies and uh, going out to eat, things like that. And I realized that my diet of movie intake is basically Disney and Pixar movies. And uh, I would say like 50% of my sermon illustrations now are from Disney and Pixar movies. And I wanted to talk about one of my favorites, uh, a movie called Moana. Just a quick show of hands. Who's seen Moana? Probably everyone here. It's about a young princess who is living on a Polynesian island, and she's next in line to become the ruler of this small village there. But she wrestles with this impulse. She wants to, she feels this nudge to leave the island and go out on a journey of exploration. And it's a little whisper that nags her. She has, on one hand, this duty to lead her community, to lead her village to security and prosperity into the future. On the other hand, she wants to leave the village and go explore. There's this nagging sense that she's not living into the person that she is called uh, to be. And, you know, with all Disney movies, they they tend to be uh, a reflection of what our culture begins to value. And when you compare Moana against some of these older Disney movies like Lion King or Snow White, uh, it's interesting how the cultural values over time have shifted. And there's a song that um, one of the popular songs from the movie, How Far I'll Go. And just reading the lyrics, it's just very telling as to uh, the cultural dynamic that is reflected here. And see the the line where the sky meets the sea? It calls me. And no one knows how far it goes. It's probably better if someone sings this instead of me just reading the lyrics. It doesn't have the same impact just by reading the lines. But I'm going to spare you from... That disaster, if I were to sing, how far it goes. If the wind in my sail on the sea stays behind me, one day I'll know. If I go, there's just no telling how far I'll go. I know everybody on this island seems so happy on this island. Everything is by design. I know everybody on this island has a role on this island, so maybe I can roll with mine. I can lead with pride. I can make us strong I'll be satisfied if I play along, but the voice inside sings a different song. What is wrong with me? And I don't know, maybe I'm thinking too critically about this very innocent Disney movie, but I think this reflects, it captures the zeitgeist of our age where self-discovery and self-actualization at the expense of community become the gods of this age. Our own desires become our Lord. We champion what we feel inside at the expense of everything else. Moana even admits that everyone has a role in this community. She knows that she has a role too, but that little double entendre there, so maybe I can roll with mine. She wants to pursue a different call in service to her own desires inside. Of course, Disney movies always have a way of making everybody happy. You know, Moana goes off, she finds herself, but she also returns to her island to lead her people. But of course, in real life, it doesn't always work out that way. It's much more a zero-sum game in real life. We can't have it all. We can't discover ourselves and at the same time fulfill our obligations that we have to our communities, to our families as well. And one of the ways that this shows up in our own lives is what the author David Brooks calls... Resume virtues versus uh, eulogy virtues on the other hand. You know, resume virtues are those skills that we accumulate over time that can help us grow in our careers and professionally. Uh, They help us look better. They build our perception, our reputations. Uh, Those are uh, resume virtues. And on the other hand, we have uh, eulogy virtues, the kinds of things uh, that people will say at your funeral how kind you were to other people, the sacrifices that you made to other people, how sacrificial you were, et cetera, et cetera. And we, living in the Lower East Side of Manhattan uh, since 2016, we lived through the height of the pandemic at a time when New York was really the epicenter of it all. And from March of 2020 uh, through the summer of 2021 was an absolutely intense, season. And just thinking back to me, I I think I'm still recovering from all the effects of the pandemic in that story. I realize everyone has suffered on some level, uh, but the immensity of the suffering uh, that was taking place in New York was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. And I remember... Uh, Even amidst all that darkness and all that depression, there were moments of beauty that would emerge out of the rubble too. And it was really powerful. Every night, uh, weekdays at 7 p.m., everyone would open up their windows and start cheering and clapping and banging pots and pans, cheering for all the healthcare workers. Such a powerful moment. And I remember Holly and I, we would get the kids in our apartment and we would rush over to the window, open it up and start yelling and screaming. And such a powerful moment. I remember we're cheering for all the healthcare workers, sirens even going off some evenings and cheering up, Uh, just so thankful for these people who would sacrifice their own health and well-being for the benefit of uh, the entire city. And in those two years, 2020, 2021, I think I attended uh, more funerals in those two years than I ever had in the last 10 years combined. And, you know, mostly pandemic-related, some non-pandemic-related, but more funerals than I had ever attended uh, before. And listening to some of the stories that you hear from loved ones, you know, recounting examples uh, from these people's lives, what they're thankful for, what they remembered, you know, not once did I hear something like, oh, I'm so proud of my mom who, even though she neglected me, she was still able to find herself. Right. Not once did I hear something like that, or in you know, all that time that my dad spent apart from our family so that he could invest in his career, it was all worth it because finally he made senior vice president, and it was all worth it in the end. Uh, never did I hear that in all those eulogies uh, that I heard. And of course... Our kids want to see us work hard, and it's important to provide for our families, and there is a place for godly ambition and pursuing influence in the marketplace and in the world at large, and so I want to acknowledge that as well. But the consistent theme from all of these eulogies was that the things that made the most lasting impact in people's lives were sacrifice and consistent presence. Those were the two things that emerged as the most important values that were championed in all of these speeches that people were giving uh, in honor of those that they had lost. Story after story, recounting examples about sacrificing personal dreams and preferences for the sake of the family, for the sake of the community as well. And of course, uh, we, I think we all know that you know, we want to live for eulogy virtues, not for resume virtues but the preoccupation with the self is very hard to escape It's again it's the entire tidal wave of the culture is dragging us in that direction of wanting to be so preoccupied uh, with ourselves and it's especially prevalent in our country here in the US I remember when I was visiting, uh, my wife is Australian one of the perks of being married to an Australian is that you get to visit Sydney all the time Uh, In the name of visiting family, of course, but you get to visit Australia all the time. And I remember we were at a mall one time, and this is before we had kids, and I remember we went to buy a soccer ball. We were going to play soccer with some of our nieces and nephews, and I I bought the ball from the store, and it wasn't, uh, when when I was kicking it around, it wasn't, like what I was used to. And so my first reaction was, oh, we got to go back to the store and return this ball for our money. You know, I'm not going to take this and play with it. It's just the quality is not great. And I remember uh, Holly was like shocked. She's like, what do you mean return it? Mock, we can't do that. You know? Um, And I, I was... You know, I was taken aback, I was like, what do you mean? Like, in America, anytime you want to return something, you can. You don't have to think twice about returning something if you're not satisfied. The customer is always right. What is this country that you live in where the customer can't return something if you're not fully satisfied with the product? And it it dawned on me, though, um, how much of our culture in the U.S. elevates and makes the needs of the individual supreme over everything else. And of course, in the culture wars that I'm sure we're observing from afar, we know that that has been at the crux of so many broader arguments and dialogue in this country, too. It's the lordship of the individual elevated over and against everything else uh, in this world. The mantra of the customer is always right. It panders to this elevation uh, of the self. And this tendency uh, shows up everywhere. It shows up everywhere. There's an entire... Uh, genre of movies, uh, rom-coms, all basically follow the same formula. Find someone who makes you happy. If you don't find someone, if the person you're with doesn't make you happy anymore, go off and find someone else who will scratch that itch because, again, the goal of life is to elevate the needs of the individual, And, of course, this happens in friendship, too. The moment uh, your friends don't meet your needs anymore, uh, they don't make you look and feel a certain way anymore, you drop them and you pick up other ones who can give you those initial feelings that you used to have uh, with those friends. But what if God is actually calling us into relationships, not primarily to meet our own needs, but so that we can meet the needs of other people that God has placed uh, in our lives? and this priority of the self it also starts to seep into the life of the church too and uh, you know in new york uh, when when i first moved out there in 2005 uh, there weren't uh, as many churches as there are now I, I don't know anecdotally 30 40% more churches now and some of that is the influence of like different church planting movements that have taken off in the city, but back back when I first moved to New York, you know, I just went to the one church that was uh, that I had some friends at. There weren't many options. They had strong community, and I started attending that church. But now, it's this entire marketplace of churches, and you know, this church has great worship. This church has great preaching. This church serves great food after service. Uh, You know, you go down the list, uh, every preference imaginable can be catered to by virtue of having so many different churches. And this idea of the priority of the self, it also influences how we think about church too. Church becomes a dispenser of goods and services that we simply consume. And there's a Barna study that said, uh, evaluating the well-being of people in our country quote-unquote, enjoying yourself, was the highest goal articulated by these individuals. But what was shocking in that survey was that even among churchgoers, 66% listed enjoying yourself as the highest goal. 66%. What is, I think, more surprising when you think about the context of the church is that we can even spiritualize our preferences too. Uh, Our instinct to consume, we can spiritualize by saying things like, oh, you know, I'm just not growing in this community. I need to find a place that will meet my needs uh, for spiritual growth. We can hide under the guise of spirituality. But however we define it, uh, our spiritual growth becomes a religious good that we also consume. But what if the main way that God actually wants us to grow is not by how much we are receiving by the church community, by, in fact, pouring ourselves out for other people. That Perhaps that's the way that God wants to see us grow, by meeting the needs of other people, often at the expense of our own needs, too. There's a passage in Isaiah 58, verses 9 to 11. And this passage has been, for me, one of the most life-altering passages. And whenever I come back to this passage, it always helps me to recalibrate my own priorities in my spiritual journey and life in general, too. And just to provide a little context, the prophet Isaiah is talking to people who are deeply religious, uh, churchgoers. And in many important ways, they're kind of missing the point. They're getting caught up in all kinds of religious activity and This is what Isaiah says. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. It's it's a bit counterintuitive. When we find ourselves in spiritual d- darkness, when we find that our needs aren't being satisfied, even in the church context, it doesn't say, well, go out and search for what will scratch your itch. Go out and uh, find a different community that will help you to meet your needs. What it says is, Actually, the way that you can emerge out of darkness is when you satisfy the needs of those who are in deeper need around you. The way that you can emerge from that is by pouring yourself out uh, for the poor. It's when we commit ourselves to other people's well-being that the Lord makes this promise that he will satisfy our needs in a sun-scorched land, and that when we feel weak, he will in fact strengthen us when we're giving ourselves away a counterintuitive, countercultural call from God to his people, that if you want your needs met, the only way that can happen is when you commit yourself to those in the community who have deeper needs, who are struggling, who in many ways are experiencing a different kind of Poverty or oppression, of course, this is talking about people in the world, but I think this applies to the church too. all kinds of needs that we face in the church community, those who feel oppressed in all, all kinds of ways. This is actually in fact the way to true fulfillment, the way to experiencing all the filling and the meeting of our needs that we all have there's there 's someone that i 've gotten acquainted with you know just and the stories that I've read about him and Eric Little from the movie Chariots of Fire. And I realize we're spanning different generations here, but uh, how many of you have heard of uh, Eric Little? Probably most, yeah, okay. Um, this is an amazing story of this Scottish Olympian who in the 1924 Olympics was the favorite to win the 100-meter dash. And because of his convictions about uh, observing the Sabbath... There was a qualifying heat that landed on a Sunday and Eric Little decided to forego that qualifying heat and he missed out on competing for that gold medal even though he was the heavy favorite. Uh, just an astonishing story of this person's strong convictions that he was willing to let go of an Olympic goal for the sake of living into the truths that he confessed and the convictions that he held dearly uh, inside. And what's so remarkable about this story is, you know, I don't know if... You run track or you've, you're familiar with track. I ran track in high school. It was the one sport where they didn't cut anyone, and so I went out for track. And if you know um, the 100 meter dash, it's vastly different from the 400 meter dash, which is the one that Eric Little would eventually run. Uh, you know, different fast twitch muscles are activated. Uh, it requires a different kind of endurance in the 400 meter dash. It's why, you know, Usain Bolt and uh, uh, Carl Lewis. They would win the 100 and 200, but they wouldn't also compete in the 400 because it was a completely different race. Michael Johnson would run the 200 and the 400, but the 100 and the 400 were completely different races. I know I'm beating a dead horse a little bit, but in this movie, Eric Little, he ran the 400-meter dash because he couldn't run the 100, and he won gold. It's just an amazing story uh, of perseverance and uh, determination and That that's not the point that I wanted to share about that. What what's actually remarkable about uh, Eric Little's life is what happened after uh, he ran the race. And if you know the story, Eric Little would become uh, a missionary to China. And uh, you know, I don't want to over spiritualize that vocation necessarily, but he decided to become a missionary. He was in China, and this was a time uh, during World War II. uh, maybe a little bit after, where uh, Japan occupied China. And every foreigner who was living there was sent to an internment camp. And so Eric Little found himself uh, at this internment camp uh, with all these other uh, foreigners who were uh, living there. And he was separated from his wife and his three little girls who were on the other side of the world, uh, I think back in Scotland. And you know, the conditions were just absolutely terrible Uh, at this camp. Uh, And yet, uh, Little would just pour himself out for the people around him. Uh, He would organize these uh, youth sports programs for the hundreds of children that were there separated from their own parents. Uh, He would always be encouraging to the other uh, internments, uh, people who were interned there, uh, always positive, wanting to support other people, often at the expense of his own needs. And you know this place was uh, always crammed. People were standing in line just to use the bathroom. They were having to share uh, rooms with dozens of other people. It was dirty, and people would start to turn on one another. Uh, you know They would cut in line because they wanted to eat first, or they would hoard resources because they wanted to have more for themselves. It was like a real-life uh, squid game. And there was a theologian who would, was also in uh, intern at that camp, and his name was Landon Gilkey. And he wrote about this experience in a book. And what he recounted was that he was so disillusioned by that experience because even the pastors and the missionaries would start to turn on other people uh, so that they could just hoard more for themselves. And he was just so disillusioned with uh, Christianity because of what he saw there. Just human nature laid completely bare, exposed for everyone to see. But in that camp, he noticed that there was one person uh, who was different. And that person was actually Eric Little. And he writes about Eric Little in this book. And this is what he says about Little. Uh, This is Langdon writing. Often, in an evening, I would see him bent over a chessboard or a model boat or directing some sort of square dance, absorbed, weary, and interested, pouring all of himself into this effort to capture the imagination of these penned-up youths. He was overflowing with good humor and love for life and with enthusiasm and charm. It is rare, indeed, that a person has the good fortune to meet a saint but he came as close to it as anyone I have ever known. Everyone in that camp was complaining about something, grumbling, hated being there, put their own needs above the needs of everyone else, except for Eric Little, poured himself out for everyone else, even though he had the same needs, even though he was separated from his three young girls and his wife, on the other side of the world. And what was tragic was Little actually would die uh, in that camp. He had a brain uh, tumor that went undiagnosed, and he would die in a matter of weeks. And the entire camp was absolutely stunned at losing this dear brother, a person who became like a father to so many people in that camp, and just absolutely devastated for days because of how much he meant uh, to everyone there. And just a powerful story. And when we think about this call in Ephesians chapter 4 to make every effort to strive for unity, make every effort to pursue oneness in the community, this is the kind of attitude that when we're animated by this kind of self-forgetfulness and this kind of self-sacrifice, the potential that it has to bring a community to life is unimaginable. But it feels like such a lofty ideal. How do we live into this kind of life? How do we achieve that kind of character? And to respond to that, I want to come back to our passage in Ephesians 4 and focus on this first part, which says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. That call to maintain unity, to bear with one another in love, to be one body as we were called, to live into this one hope as we were called, all of it is grounded in this reality that we are, in fact, not our own. We don't belong to ourselves. We're actually prisoners for the Lord. And not only is it a more fulfilling life to live one that's poured out in service to other people, but it's actually incumbent upon us as prisoners of the Lord. We're actually obligated to, in fact, live into this kind of life. There's, I'm going to end with just one more movie example. Uh, One of my favorite movies, uh, Saving Private Ryan, and it tells the story of uh, Captain John Miller played by Tom Hanks. Uh, They are called by their superior officers, to go out in search of this one person, Private Ryan. And it doesn't make sense to them. And Why should we as a platoon risk all of our lives just to save one man, Private Ryan? And if you know the story, uh, Private Ryan has three older brothers who were killed in World War II when... Uh, as they thought about his mother, who had already lost three sons, the thought of her losing a fourth child was so heart-wrenching that they sent out this platoon to save him and to bring him home uh, to his mother, who was waiting for him. And it raises this ethical dilemma. Uh, is, this, is it worth it for this entire group of soldiers to risk their lives, eventually many of them giving their lives, to rescue just one person? And they're having a conversation... Uh, maybe around a fire or over a meal, when they're talking about that dilemma, this private Ryan, is he going to be worth it? Uh, you know, he if we're going to sacrifice everything to rescue him, he better invents something like a longer-lasting light bulb. He better cure some disease. He better be worth it if we're giving everything that we have so that this guy can be saved. And in one of the final scenes... Uh, Miller and his platoon, they eventually find Private Ryan, and they're defending this last station there. They're in battle, and most of the platoon gets wiped out. And John Miller is there. Uh, He gets shot, and he's sitting there defending uh, with the last ounce of energy that he has, shooting his little pistol, uh, firing against a little tank that eventually explodes. And with his dying breath the final words that he ever utters, he finds Private Ryan. And he has this look in his eyes as he looks at Private Ryan and he whispers these words to him, earn this, earn this. And the subtext there is, we have given everything that we have. We've given our lives so that you could have life. Make it worth the sacrifice. Make it worth the sacrifice. Earn this by the kind of life that you will live. He wants Private Ryan to be worthy of that sacrifice. And in one of the final scenes of the movie, this is Private Ryan. It flashes forward to the scene in the cemetery where he's at the gravesite of Captain John Miller. And he's standing there in tears, honoring uh, the life that was laid down so that he could have life. And Private Ryan looks to his family and he is asking them, he's telling them, tell me that I have been a good man. Tell me that I have lived a good life. In tears, he recognizes how much was given to him. He wants to make sure that he lived his life in such a way that was worth the sacrifice of all these men. And if if you were there in Private Ryan's spot, uh, looking over the gravesite of someone who had given their life for you, how would you evaluate uh, your own life? What kinds of things would you start to value? What kind of regrets uh, would you have in looking back? And what the Apostle Paul is trying to tell us in Ephesians chapter 4 is, uh, in fact, that is all of our reality, that it's appropriate that there's a cross that's standing there right in front of Private Ryan, because there is someone, Jesus Christ, who has given his life. And while salvation is completely free, by his grace through faith alone, uh, grace is free but vastly costly. And the cost, of course, was Jesus and his life. And he gave up everything so that we could have life. And as we stand over the cross looking at what Jesus has given to us, It forces us to understand and evaluate and look back on our own lives and to ask the question, have we lived lives that are worthy of the calling that God has given us? The call that cost Jesus everything. Are we living our lives in such a way that make his sacrifice worth it? Our lives are not our own. All of us living as prisoners of Christ, uh, purchased the freedoms that we have, the agency we have, the opportunities we have to live into the call that he has given us. All of that came at a massive price. Jesus dying on the cross, giving up everything so that we could have all the opportunities that we have. How are we using what God has so graciously given to us? And when we heed that call to in a way, pick up our crosses just as Jesus picked up his own cross in service to other people, that is the secret ingredient to a community that's marked by vitality, and strength, and thick community, it's self-sacrifice, self-regetfulness. And what can give us that perspective is when we reflect on the cross. And so let's take a moment to do that now. We have a little bit of time to reflect on that reality. But let's spend a few moments now reflecting on the sacrifice that Jesus has made uh, for us. As we meditate at the foot of the cross, the salvation that Jesus purchased for us is completely free. None of our works could ever achieve that salvation. And yet, Jesus died on the cross not so that we can do what we want with our lives but so that we would be servants to him that we would live lives that are worthy of the calling that we have received from our Savior. In every story of sacrifice uh, that we see in the world every every movie, every novel that ends with some kind of sacrifice, Uh, the reason why it resonates so deeply, it's merely an echo of that ultimate sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf, where Jesus gave up everything so that we could have everything. What are we going to do with the God-given opportunities and resources and time gifts and talents that he has so graciously given to us, will we use them to grow our resume virtues, or will we use them to grow these eulogy virtues, pouring our lives out in service uh, to other people? It's the only way that community can be forged when self-forgetfulness and self-sacrifice is elevated over the lordship of the self. Let's take a moment now at the foot of the cross reflecting on this reality that we do not belong to ourselves. We in fact belong to the Lord Jesus Christ who purchased our lives by his blood shed on the cross. Take a moment to reflect on that. I think living in New York, and I imagine it's very similar here. But uh, living through the pandemic uh, was a uh, massively isolating time. And in countless conversations that I've had with people, um, uh, our our own needs feel so massive. It feels impossible to muster up any kind of strength to start to pour it out for other people the anxiety that we felt, uh, the fears that we had about uh, our health, the health of our relatives, uh, the questions we had about job security, the adjustments we made to working remotely, uh, just a massively jarring experience for all of us on different levels. And in many ways, the isolation we felt and the preoccupation with the self, It only dug us deeper into a hole of more isolation, more darkness. And it locked us into this vicious cycle where the more we focused on our own needs, the more anxious we actually felt, uh, the harder it became to cope with every challenge that life would throw at us. And I wanted to encourage us again with these verses from Isaiah 58, a counterintuitive, countercultural counter to the self and it says that if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday the Lord will guide you always he will satisfy your needs in a sun scorched land and will strengthen your frame God uh, is wanting to meet all of our needs. He He wants to lift us up out of the dark depression that I think every one of us has experienced on some level. And I don't want to oversimplify um, the complexity of the challenge we've experienced, but one way I think that God wants us to ex- experience and lean into is this idea of investing in other people's needs. And when we, in fact, begin to meet those needs, uh, that's where we can actually find our needs are met too. And so if you could take a moment to consider how God might be calling you to shirk some of the pressing needs in your own life in the name of meeting the need of someone else in the community. And take a moment to listen to how god might be nudging you uh, in that direction so let's take a moment to uh, reflect on that too uh, maybe the last thing we can spend some time praying over is uh, taking in an, an inventory of our lives and uh, asking the question are we optimizing our lives in such a way that When we look back on our lives uh, we won't have any regrets and how we're spending our time and energy, uh, the resources we have, the career choices we make, lifestyle decisions. And it doesn't necessarily have to be dramatic. But in even very small ways, uh, how can we prioritize the needs of other people in the community uh, over our own? And uh, it could be something as small as uh, sending an email to someone just to check in on them, or following up with someone who went through a very difficult time, Taking someone out to eat, sending someone groceries, uh, babysitting, uh, small gestures can make a world of a difference, and who knows, uh, decades later, as uh, people are reflecting back on your life, uh, they could attribute uh, their own life's trajectories changing because of one email that you sent. And I hope we will never begrudge the small things that can have massive, massive impact. And So if we can take some time now to just take an inventory of our lives and uh, it doesn't always have to be so dramatic or life-altering, but even in small ways, how can we uh, live our lives in service to other people? And let's take some time to pray over that and ask God to even reveal to us some small steps he might want us to take, too. So let's pray for that. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.